0: So you can turn with me to Romans chapter 11. We're in Romans chapter 11 this morning. Have you noticed that there's a lot of hatred towards the nation of Israel and the the Jewish people? Have you ever tried to examine why is that? Why is there so much opposition to this small nation? There's many that would argue that The Israelites shouldn't even have uh, their land. I read this in the news uh, this week. This comes from the Daily Wire. Uh, New hires of Ben and Jerry's required to watch anti-Israel propaganda. So if you're an employee of Ben and Jerry's, you have to, to watch this. Ben and Jerry's, which has demonstrated its hostility to the state of Israel in the past has reportedly required new employees to watch video lectures featuring Palestinian activists lying about the Jewish state. There's a spiritual element behind all of this and it's ultimately Satan would love to destroy the nation of Israel because Satan knows the word of God and wants to destroy the word of God. And obviously Satan's never gonna be able to do that. But let's just say hypothetically that the nation of Israel was wiped out, the book of Revelations couldn't be fulfilled because there's a promise that there'll be 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, 144,000 that God's going to raise up during that time. Think of if the Jews were wiped out in the Old Testament times. In in Esther's day, there was an attack to try to destroy all of, of the Jews. Then God's promise that Jesus would come from Israel from the tribe of of Judah, would not have been fulfilled. And God is obviously going to be faithful uh, to his word. So this section of scripture, Romans 9, 10, and 11, is really important because it shows us that God is faithful to his promise. I want to take you back to the end of Romans chapter 8. We have these amazing promises that God works all things together for good, to those that love God and are the called according to his purpose, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, then Paul goes into these three chapters about the nation of Israel to illustrate for us that God is doing good for the nation of Israel, even in the midst of Israel's disobedience. And that also... God hasn't stopped loving the nation of Israel. So our takeaway after these three chapters should be that our hearts are affirmed in God's love, his unconditional love for us. That we're even more convinced that God's working all things uh, together for good. Verse one, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. This is the question that a lot of even believers are asking. Has God cast away his people? Are God's promises still true for the nation of Israel? Has the church replaced the nation of Israel? You'll find many Christians that will teach that God has cast away the nation of Israel. But the scriptures tell us certainly not. That God hasn't cast away the children of Israel. Paul gives us the illustration of his own life. He says, I'm an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And as Saul, before he became Paul, he had a hard heart against Christ. But God, in his grace, saved Saul. God is clearly still moving amongst the, the Jewish people. God is not cast away his people whom he foreknew. God knew what Israel's hard hearts would be. He knew their disobedience. He knew their rejection of Christ when he chose them, but yet he still chose them. He wasn't surprised by their stubborn state. Continuing in verse two, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and tore down your altars and I alone am left. And they seek my life. Elijah's at a low point in his relationship with God. And he's actually asking that God would judge the nation of Israel. That God would cast away the nation of Israel. He stands up against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. God answers and sends fire from heaven. But then the next chapter, 1 Kings 18, you see Elijah responding in fear. Jezebel sends a text message saying, you're a dead man. And fear takes over him, even though he stood up to these prophets of Baal and seen God work in a powerful way. And he runs for his life, and he asks that God would take his life. He says, God, I am tired of living. And this is Elijah, who loved the Lord and was faithful to the Lord, wasn't gonna commit suicide, but he's asking God, would you take my life? Would you take me to heaven? And one of the reasons was, there's no one in Israel that loves and serves the Lord. I'm alone. I'm alone in being faithful, to you. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe in your family, you're like, I'm the only believer in your workplace. You're like, I'm the only believer. And it's this feeling that nobody else uh, loves the Lord. And here's God's response. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, there's something that you're missing. There's 7,000 people. That's a lot of people that haven't compromised in this idolatry. God was working even though Elijah wasn't seeing. God is working in the nation of Israel even when we're not seeing. verse five, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul's saying right now, even though the majority of Israel has rejected Christ as the Messiah, as Paul's writing, he's saying, there is a remnant of Jewish believers currently, 2022, there's a remnant of Jewish believers. Though the majority of Israel has rejected Christ, there's a minority, an election of grace that that God has saved. And this is the lesson about grace in verse 6. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. It can't be both ways. It can't be grace and works. It's one or the other. Israel's an example of God's grace, being in a relationship with God based on his unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, receiving something that we don't deserve. Israel doesn't deserve the love of God. In your relationship with your job, it's a works-based relationship, isn't it? If you don't work, you don't get paid. And that's not our relationship with God. It's based on grace. But oftentimes we'll move towards a works based mentality. But God's saying it's one or the other. It's either grace or works. The moment it becomes works, it's no longer grace. I would advise you and myself approach God on his grace. Amen? We don't want to go before God and say, hey, God, why don't you give me what you deserve, what I deserve? That's a scary prayer. Lord, would you be gracious to me? I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I'm, I'm broken before you. I don't deserve your love. I appreciate your love. A relationship that's really based on the grace of God. In verse seven, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it, and the rest were, were blinded. So as a majority, Israel didn't seek, didn't obtain what they seek. Sought after. Seeking a relationship with God, but seeking it through the law, seeking through their own works, they stumbled at the sacrifice of Christ. But there are those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, the elect. It's a saved minority with a a blinded majority. And these next few verses talk about a spiritual stupor, a spiritual blindness that God has put over the nation of Israel. Just as is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they shouldn't hear to this very day. This is quoting from Deuteronomy 29 and also Isaiah 29. And we're going to see God's sovereign hand in this. We're going to see God working through this, even though Israel is disobedient, even though Israel didn't believe that Christ is, is the Messiah, God temporarily gives them this spiritual state of stupor, of sleepiness, where they're rejecting Christ for the purpose of saving Gentiles, then Gentiles will be used by God to spur on the nation of Israel to jealousy. One small way that I've seen this is as a church, we've been able to make several trips over to Israel, study the Bible on site, Lord willing, we'll be doing a a trip in February if you want want to join us. But we've used the the same tour guide, and his name's Etai, and he's become a friend. He's even visited Colorado Springs and been over uh, to to our house. And Etai knows the scriptures. He knows it really, really well. The Old Testament and the New Testament, his Bible's all marked up. Does a lot of tours through the year. And every morning on the tour bus, he starts with reading a psalm. And he'll take you through these different sites and even share about Christ. But then you ask him, Etai, why don't you believe in Christ as your Savior? I mean, you know the scriptures. You you teach uh, the scriptures. And he's like, I just can't buy into the resurrection. And you talk about the facts of the resurrection. And it's just like these spiritual blinders are on his eyes. And and you really see the the reality of these verses. In verse 9, and David says... Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see. A bow down their back always. Psalm 69 verses 22 and 23. David talks about Israel stumbling, a snare over their own table. The table is speaking of the temple, their worship of God in the temple, and how could the temple become a snare or trap to them? Well, we see in Christ's earthly life, the temple was really absent a real relationship with God. The scribes and the Pharisees were about the outward, about the show, but they weren't about a true, genuine relationship with God. They had all of the tradition without the authenticity of a relationship with God, and that can happen, can't it? You can go into a church that really isn't connected to God, that isn't living for God. In our lives, we can go to church, but not know the Lord. And that was the nation of Israel. Their table became a snare or a trap uh, to them. Verse 11, I say then, had they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So their fall, their spiritual stupor is temporary. It's not gonna be to the place where they're not able to get up. Again, going back to this place that God hasn't rejected the nation of Israel, but there's a purpose in their fall. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So God in his sovereignty is even gonna use their disobedience. He's working all things together for good. So the Gentiles get saved, and the Jews see in Gentile believers this relationship with God that's based on grace, and they go, "I want that." How many times are we provoked to jealousy? You know, how many times uh, do you see something in your neighbor's yard, and you're like, "Man, I need to work on my yard." Or you've got a friend or a family member that starts working out and eating right, and you're like, "Ho oh, oh, ho oh. ho, I need to work out." You know, I need to. I'm, I'm provoked to to jealousy. How many of you married couples are married because you were provoked to jealousy? Like you, you were dating and then you broke up and then one of you started dating someone else and then all of a sudden it's like, I love this woman. I can't live without her. I'm not letting that knucklehead date her, right? You, you were moved to, to jealousy. And so hopefully the nation of Israel sees something in Gentiles' relationship with the Lord that moves them to jealousy. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Think about this for a moment. I can't wait to see the fullness of the nation of Israel. If God used their fall in such an impactful way, how much more so is he going to use their fullness? In the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, there's a promise, a prophecy of Christ's second coming that the nation of Israel is going to ask Jesus in his second coming Where did you get those wounds? As he still bears the wounds of the cross, and he'll say, in the house of my friends. And they mourn, and as a nation, that's when they come to realize the gravity of their sin and that Jesus is the Messiah and coming into that fullness of relationship uh, with Christ. And it's going to be powerful. In verse 13, For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Paul magnifies his ministry to the Gentiles to hopefully spur on the Jewish people. For if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So if God used their fall how much more so is he going to use their reconciling? Verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Here's the point of verse 16. This is what God is saying, is in giving, as they made offering to the Lord, the first fruits would then set apart everything else. The the lump is holy, then all is holy. If the, the root is holy, all all is holy. That's why giving is so important, tithing unto the Lord, because we're really taking the finances that God has provided to us and saying, God, I'm putting you first. I'm putting the kingdom first. And then that's a way of setting apart everything unto uh, the Lord. But the message of verse 16 is this remnant, the, this small group that has been saved, is the first fruits of the Jewish people of more To come. Verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, with them become a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Remember, Paul is writing to the Church of Rome. They're Jews and Gentiles that had great hostility towards each other, culturally would not spend time with each other, but now they're in Christ. That's been broken down. And so he turns to the Gentiles and says, you know, you guys were a wild olive tree and you were grafted in to the olive tree. You're grafted into the promises of God, the fatness of the olive tree, God's grace to to bring in the Gentiles. Some of the olive tree broken off through unbelief, this rejection of Christ, and then God, then taking the the wild olive tree and bringing it in, and do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root uh, supports you. A tendency amongst Gentile believers apparently to look down upon the nation of Israel. How could they reject Christ? How could they be so uh, stubborn? And yet God's saying, "Don't boast against the branches. Don't." Boast against the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel supports you. Spiritually, the nation of Israel supports all of us who are Gentile believers. How so? Because Jesus came through the nation of Israel. Jesus is born from the tribe of Judah. So we would not be saved if it wasn't for Christ coming in his humanity through the tribe of of Judah. I do think about this in some ways with our parents, right? You don't want to boast against your parents because your parents support you. And you go, wait a second, my parents don't support me. I'm an adult and yada yada yada. But your parents brought you into this world, right? Your parents took care of you as a as an infant, as a as a young child. And so it doesn't make any sense to have this this arrogant attitude against your your parents and we shouldn't have this arrogant attitude towards the, the nation of Israel. This is what I find interesting though. God in his infinite wisdom knew that Gentile believers would be prone to this. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've talked with Gentile believers that just don't get God's heart for the nation of Israel. God said he'll bless those who bless Israel. He'll curse those who curse Israel. He tells us to pray for the, the peace of, of Israel one of the reasons I think historically that God has blessed the United States of America is our stance towards the nation of Israel. Countries that come against the nation of Israel, ultimately, they're coming against the Lord, right? There's a blessing that's going to come into your life as you bless the nation of Israel, as you pray for them, pray for the, the peace of, of Israel. Now, are the Israelites perfect? No, we know our Bible. They're They're not. They're sinners that need to be saved by grace, just like us. But there is this tendency amongst Gentile believers to want to reject the nation of Israel. We look at the history of Germany. There was a lot of believers leading up to that Nazi movement. Germany wasn't absent of believers and they had a theology as a church, as a whole, that God had rejected the nation of Israel. Well, that led to the mindset of saying, well, we can kill and persecute Jews, right? So there was believing Christians that had come to believe that God had rejected the nation of Israel. So this stuff is, unfortunately, can be hardwired in us, but it's a choice that we can make to understand God's heart for the the nation of Israel. You guys doing okay? There's gonna be a really fun application at the end, so stay with me. I know this is kind of a hard chapter to, to work through, Verse 19, you will say then branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Don't be haughty, but fear. So don't be in this place of pride, but in this place of fear, this awe and respect and gratitude of God that he was gracious to graft us in. For God didn't spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but on you goodness, but if you continue in His goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. What allows us to continue in God's goodness? It's faith. It's faith in the gospel. It's faith in that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. What caused some Israelites to be cut off was unbelief the rejection of the gospel, the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. So this is an exhortation to have humility, to have fear and respect of God, to continue trusting in his goodness. And why would we not want to continue trusting in his goodness? This is an interesting exhortation in verse 22 to consider God's goodness but also his severity. The goodness of God that he would give us his son, that Jesus would die for our sins, the severity of God that he alone has the authority, the power, the position to send us to hell. He, he, he's that holy and he's that powerful. He's the one who determines our eternity. So in our relationship with God, we want to be in this place where we know his goodness and we know his grace and we know his kindness, but we don't lose sight also of, of his severity. There's an aspect where he's God and he's, he's all-powerful, and he's all-holy. All and so we med- meditate upon his goodness and his severity, and that produces the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is such a good thing. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. When we're in this place of awe and respect of, of who God is. In verse 23, "'And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, "'will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again.'" So if there's Israelites that repent from unbelief, that trust that Jesus is the Messiah, man, they're saved. They're born again. They're, they're brought back in. Verse 24, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree. So if gentiles are saved by grace, how much more so Jewish people saved by grace as well. For I do not desire brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the gentiles has come. So God tells us don't be ignorant of this mystery. Well, what's the mystery? that Israel would have a hard heart towards God, that they would have this temporary spiritual stupor, that God and his grace would then use that to open up the door of salvation to Gentiles, and Gentiles would provoke the Jews unto jealousy. If we are ignorant of this mystery, we could get to a place of being prideful, that we should be wise in our own opinion. And so God says, this has happened, To Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come. At some point, there's enough Gentiles saved from God's perspective where he's like, all right, the fullness of the Gentiles is fulfilled. He comes back, reveals himself again to the children of Israel, and they embrace him fully in faith. Another promise of of God's work in the nation of Israel, verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved at his As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All of Israel being saved. God has made a covenant. He's made a contract with the children of Israel and he's gonna be faithful to that. The deliverer will come out of Zion. Christ revealing himself again to the children of Israel. Verse 28, concerning the disciples... They are enemies for your sake. Sorry, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Many Jews during Paul's day, enemies to the gospel, not wanting anything to do with Christ, persecuting those that believed in Christ. Paul did that before he was saved, and he was also an object of their persecution. But Paul reminds them they're still chosen by the Lord. Concerning election, they're loved by the Lord for the sake of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. And here's an amazing truth, an amazing principle, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So when God gave gifts and calling to the nation of Israel, it's an unconditional commitment on his part It's irrevocable. He's not going to change his mind in those gifts and callings. And this is what is comforting to us. This is what's comforting to us, that God's love towards us, he's not going to change his mind. The gifts that he's given to us, he's not going to change his mind. The love of the Lord is steadfast. We have this certainty as we go through life. Aren't things just changing so rapidly? There's a lot of change 2020, as the pandemic broke out. But now, once again, in 2022, we're finding ourselves in a tremendous amount of change. Economically, there's so much change. Prices are going up at just an astounding rate. Interest rates jumped this week by three quarters of a, of a percent. All of a sudden, there's this uncertainty, and you can feel it in the air and people's attitudes. Well, guess what? Well, one thing that we know with absolute certainty is God's not going to change his mind about loving you. <laughs> and that's good news, isn't it? So many things changing in this life, but God's commitment of love is not going to change. Yeah, it's worth the, some excitement, isn't it? Some amen. Thank you back there for the amen. It's, it's good. Good for a preacher's soul. So, Verse 30. For as you were once disobedient to God yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient that through mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy for God has committed them all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And this is where this just gets so mind blowing. We're actually blessed as Gentile believers through Israel's disobedience. God chose to show mercy upon us because Israel was being disobedient. We all know that we're disobedient and God shows mercy to us as Gentile believers that's going to encourage the nation of Israel. So God, in spite of Israel's disobedience, is doing this amazing work of mercy and of grace. And this is the exclamation point of Romans 8.28. And we know all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, look what God's doing with the children of Israel. He's working all things together for good. The nation of Israel is proof that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And this is just too much for Paul to fit into his brain. In verse 33, he says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How deep, the depths of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. We look at the nation of Israel and we go, God, what in the world are you doing? And God goes, I know exactly what I'm doing, right? Because he's got so much wisdom and he's got so much knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. This is just one example of this where we can't get to a place Where we understand God's ways. We know His Word, He's revealed Himself to us in His Word, but we don't know what God is up to. We know ultimately what the end of His plan is gonna be with Christ returning, but verse 34 for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor? Well, we've sure tried, haven't we? I've tried to be the counselor of the Lord. I've tried to say, God, I'd really like this to work out this way. I'm pleading with the Lord. I want this, this outcome. But God doesn't take counsel from us, thankfully. A good parallel text to read today, along with Romans 11, is Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 talks about the nations of the world that we're just a drop in the bucket to the Lord. And the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers to God. And that's just an illustration. It's just a comparison. But could you imagine today, dads, if you're out in your backyard barbecuing and there's a grasshopper that tries to give you counsel on what you're doing? It's like, hey, you're messing up on the burgers. Like, you need to flip that one. That's not a good seasoning. It's like, you're a dumb grasshopper. Shut up. You know? I'm not, I'm not listening to you. You don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Or were these little grasshoppers crying out to God saying, Saying, God, what are you doing? You know, I'm doubting you. And God's like, no, I, I got this under control. I've got a plan. I'm working this together for good. And I love you. My love towards you is going to be committed and faithful. In verse 35, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. God's not a debtor to anyone, He doesn't owe anybody anything. God's the one that has initiated his love for us. It's not that we love God, but that God has first loved us. And so here's the conclusion. For of him and through him and to him are all things. God is in control. He's the author of life. He's the sustainer of all things. And to whom be glory forever. Amen. Only God could come up with this plan. That Israel would choose disobedience. Israel on their own, with their own free will, would go into idolatry, reject that Jesus is the Messiah, the majority. That God then in his grace would not allow their disobedience to have the final word, but open up the door of salvation to Gentiles, and then the Gentiles would spur on the Jews to jealousy. So let me share my heart with you for just a moment, and we'll head into to communion. Is I've really enjoyed... Romans 9, 10, and 11. More so than I ever have in the past. And these are difficult chapters to study and teach. But where it's been a tremendous comfort to me is to see in a greater way that God really does work all things together for good. And nothing can separate me from the love of God. Remember Paul said at the end of Romans 8, he said, I am persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And as I've been studying and teaching these three chapters, God's spoken to me through, through the, the word that there's some things in my life that I haven't been surrendering to him, that I haven't been trusting, that he's gonna work those things together for good. And there's been some challenges in, in my life, some suffering in my life. If I'm honest, I really wish weren't there. If I could choose, I would say, I wouldn't want this to be a part of, of my life. And I think all of us are there to some degree. There's something in the past or something in the present where we go, I, I really just don't like this difficulty that happened or, or is happening. Things aren't going the way that I would expect. And it's kind of been grating at me. And, and I, I would say that even prior to going through these chapters, I felt like I would surrendered that suffering to the Lord. I had felt like that I had braced it to the Lord, but especially this section about God being the potter and I'm the clay. So, so he's God. He gets to decide. I don't get to decide. So, so if he wants to allow challenge and suffering in my life, who am I to go to the Lord and say, hey, I don't like this. I, I, don't, I don't want this in my life. And what it's helped me to do, and I know it's going to be a process in continuing to walk in, is to embrace it and to surrender it to the Lord and go, okay, Lord, here's this suffering. I'm putting it in your hands. And it's starting to move a little bit towards excitement, oddly enough, of like, okay, Lord, it'll be fun to see how this turns out. Like, if you did this with the nation of Israel, then you can use this suffering. And it'll be fun to see how you work it together for good. But I'm confident, Lord, I'm confident in this place that you're, you're going to work all things together for good that nothing's going to separate me from the love of God. But I know there'll be peaks and there'll be valleys and I'll need to remind myself of these truths. But as we take communion this morning, be fully assured that God's able to fulfill his promise of working things together for good. Maybe you have things in your life that you just haven't been able to figure out. Man, welcome to the club. (laughs) Who's known the mind of God? You look back on your past and you go, why, why did God allow this? Why did, why did it have to go down this way? There's things going on in your life right now where you're like, man, I just can't figure this out. And we come to the communion table, we go, okay, Lord, I see your character. You're good. You died for me and rose again. And I'm trusting you. I'm surrendering this to you. So would you stand with me and let's pray and we'll move into a communion together. Father, we don't know why you allow some trials in our lives, some difficulties in our lives. But we do believe that you use those trials and those difficulties, that you're not absent, that you're present. You're providing comfort and you're working. We thank you for your covenant that's displayed in your broken body and your shed blood, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So, Lord, we choose to surrender. We choose to to embrace the difficulties in our lives, knowing that you're the potter and we're the clay. We thank you even that our sin and our disobedience and the sin and disobedience of others doesn't have the final word, that you're able in your sovereignty to move and orchestrate, even though Israel was disobedient. You moved and you orchestrated this amazing plan. So we acknowledge you're God, we're not. Forgive us for trying to be your counselor. And the depths and the riches of your knowledge and your wisdom. We look forward to heaven when we're going to be able to see clearly. We acknowledge that right now we just see dimly. So God, would you bless your people in communion? Would you comfort hearts Would you allow this to be a a rich time with you? In Jesus' name, amen.